Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. The first two guests on this edition of the podcast talked with me recently from the other side of the world from the U.S. First up, it's Charles Morris of Haven Ministries who joined me from Iraq to discuss how he has seen God at work even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Then from Moldova, you'll hear from Joe Savage, who serves with Emmanuel House, which offers refuge for young ladies in that country, as well as Ukraine. Also coming up, it's Pastor Brian Loritz, who brings some insight into what it really means to live the Christian life, experiencing freedom in Christ. And on this edition of The Intersection, some comments about living with authenticity from Esther Fleece, who has been known as a spokesperson for the millennial generation. Then, offering some perspective on married couples cherishing one another, you'll be hearing from marriage and relationship expert Gary Thomas. Finally, from Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs, Chad Robichaud, who has worked with veterans and active duty military in overcoming challenges, including PTSD. He offers some discussion of spiritual resiliency. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Charles Morris is speaker and president of Haven Ministries. He's also authored a book called Fleeing ISIS, Finding Jesus, The Real Story of God at Work. He joined me recently from the nation of Iraq to report some observations of how God is working, including people in that region coming to Christ. Here now is Charles Morris. I have to be a little cagey about this, but right now I'm standing outside. I'm on an army base. I'm on a Kurdish army base. They have their own army. They are valiant soldiers. They fight. They'll fight to the death. They fight to protect Christians. And they are protecting and they are launching the Iraqi army. They are the coalition forces. And I just got out of a meeting. I can't say who he is. But if you can think as high as you could get in an army, that's just that's who I just met to step out for our phone call right now in our interview. Uh, this man, just a few months ago, uh, met a friend of mine who does not see himself as an evangelist, doesn't call himself a missionary, he's not a missionary, but he's from the United States of America and works for an aid organization. And he met this gentleman. Uh, I'll call him a general, and that's getting close to what he is. <clears throat> um he begged, when he found out this guy was from America, he just assumed that he was a Christian. He didn't understand that not all Americans are Christians. He demanded that the friend of mine tell him how to become a Christian. Mm. And wow. so I walked in and met him a few minutes. About an hour after meeting with this friend of mine, his driver, as well as this, well, the head of this army base I'm standing in right now, I'm just outside his office, uh, uh, both of them, after an hour, this hardened army leader with his own troops uh, being gassed, you know, by ISIS. He just got through showing me pictures of mustard gas, just the devilish things that ISIS has done. Big, big tears coming down this hardened man's face. And I walked into his office and met him. And some U.S. Army guys, advisors, were just leaving, big, tough guys. And there on his table, so he intentionally wanted to show them, was his Bible. And the first thing he told me was about becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Now, who says 
the Lord can't work in a part of the world where 97% of the people are Muslim? Who says mm-hmm. the Lord can't wow. be doing things that are so strange for us? Uh, we think the Lord can't work here. But, you know, I'm standing right now in the country where where Abraham was called by God to be the father of a, a new kind of nation, not just the Jewish nation, but the nation of Jews and Gentiles who would follow Jesus Christ. Uh, I was in the ancient capital uh, a few hours ago of Assyria. It's mentioned in Genesis. Uh, hard-nosed, a, a, a guy named Nimrod who walked up on a hill that I stood on, and there were minefields below me because ISIS wanted to destroy, destroy all historical places. And this guy through history was known as the guy that went out and shook his fist in the face of God and said, I'm more powerful than you, which, of course, is not true. And uh, so it's just amazing. And I would just say what I see here, the spirit of a living God at work, calling people in unusual ways to him. Uh, I, I am blessed. And I think this it should be a blessing for everyone in the United States of America, every follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, we can be the hands of Jesus, even if we're just praying, even if we're just sending some relief supplies. Uh, we don't have to come here. But I want to share the stories of having come here and uh, out of a hundred interviews that we did for this brand new book, I would say Christ is on the move. And in fact, a Christian Arab evangelist in Haman Jordan told me this. It's the golden age of Islam. And I said to him, what do you mean by that? And he said, in the last few years, more Muslims, many through visions and dreams of Jesus, many Muslims, have more Muslims have come to faith in Christ in the last few years than in the prior 1,400 years of Islam combined. Now, we serve a big God, and he, if he could call Jonah to go to the evil ancient city of Nineveh, which is now Mosul, and preach a message of repentance, and the city was saved, including the animals, we're told, were saved, not just all the people. He can save souls in Iraq today in a part of the world where 97% of everybody is a professing Muslim. Charles Morris here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website haventoday.org. Well, Joe Savage joined me recently from the nation of Moldova. He is a board member for Emmanuel House, which operates in Moldova and Ukraine. He's also president of Projects That Matter. He reported about his observations, as well as some of the geopolitical and religious matters in the area. Here now from that conversation is Joe Savage. I celebrate Christmas at my house in Fairhope, Alabama. I get on the airplane a couple of days later. I fly over, and uh, and, and it's New Year's, you know, so I celebrate New Year's. And then, but everything's still decorated Christmas. Christmas music starts getting ramped up, you know, in stores and restaurants and everywhere, and Santa Claus is walking the streets and that sort of thing, only to have Christmas again on January the 7th. And then some people over here celebrate New Year's on January the 13th. And so it's uh, it's a strange set of, of holidays and the order, and it goes back, uh, it's quite lengthy, it's too much time for us to talk about it on the air, but uh, why they have that particular holiday. But a part of the country... Those who are kind of more European prone 
and uh, are trying to follow that calendar and go back and kind of drop this old uh, January 7th date is Christmas and the 13th is New Year's. My goodness. Now, is Ukraine the same way? Are they celebrating on January 7th or are they more yeah, in tune absolutely. with the West? It's, it would be Moldova and Ukraine and, you know, the old, the, pretty much the old Soviet countries uh, or, or, or republics that was a part of the Soviet Union. And, and they all celebrate, or at least most of them celebrate uh, this different calendar. And so, but it's so pretty. And, and uh, you know, they use kind of old school Christmas. I feel like I'm going back in the 1960s to celebrate. And uh, it's been a great joy. We, you know, we have a house in, in Moldova uh, for, for girls uh, once they leave the orphanages at age 15. And so those girls are vulnerable to trafficking and that sort of thing. And so we have a house that we help uh, with these girls. And then we have a house uh, in Ukraine. And that we and then I've been in and out of orphanages and taking gifts and that sort of thing for Christmas and of course sharing Christ and and just showing God's love and it has been such a such a wonderful time I love having Christmas a second Christmas and my first Christmas of 2017 over here because it's a special special time and and uh, these kids just love any kind of gift and even the simplest of gifts. Well, with these two countries where you operate, what are some of the similarities as well as some of the differences with respect to not only the kind of ministry that you do, but also the atmosphere in which you do ministry and bringing those that have come out of the orphanages into to homes, safe places, if you will, to help protect these girls from being uh, brought into human trafficking? Yeah, and the statistics over here is, is just simply horrible, and they're trying to to counteract it, but uh, like for instance, in Ukraine alone, Bob, you got you got 20% of all orphans, uh, boys and girls, will commit suicide before within a year of leaving the orphanages, and so 10% do it before they leave an orphanage, 10% do it within the first year, and that's horrible enough. But then 40% of the boys who do finish the orphanages will go into a life of crime. Often the mafia will pick them up to start doing their petty crime or kind of their dirty work. And then 60% of the girls will get trafficked. And once a girl gets trafficked, she'll have 6,000 sexual encounters against her will, and typically she's dead in seven years. And so it's a horrible, horrible thing that's going on. But uh, what's happening is, uh, is is my organization, as well as several others, that are doing great, great work. And we could use 100, 100 more organizations over here, and we'd all uh, still have plenty to do. But basically... You know, we all try to help in these orphanages and start showing the love of Christ and uh, teaching kids, you know, there's a different way. And so what we're working on now is basically opening up our own family homes um, so that kids, we can get the kids out of the orphanages sooner instead of later. And that way they're being raised in a Christian environment, a family environment. They're, they're protected, they're loved and so forth. And it's being done, you know, from the time that the kid is, is age six or eight or 12 or what have you, and not waiting for him to be 16 when almost it's oftentimes too late. So, uh, and like I said, from a ministry standpoint, it's been terrific. Every single girl in our house here in Moldova knows the Lord, loves the Lord, and is following the Lord. And in fact, I had three of the girls from Moldova, this was a dream when we started the home a couple of years ago, that they would 
come to know Jesus in such a way that they would then want to go and serve orphans themselves. And they, I had my three oldest girls who are 18 meet me in Ukraine, and they served as, as my translators, and we handed out gifts to orphan kids in Ukraine. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing and quite gratifying for myself to see that the program's working. Joe Savage here on The Intersection. Learn more about Emanuel House through ehouseforgirls.org. Well, Brian Loritz is lead pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View, California. In a recent conversation, he discussed some of the principles he relates in the book, Saving the Saved, How Jesus Saves Us from Tri-Harder Christianity into Performance-Free Love. Here now is Brian Loritz. Well, yeah, so you're in Montgomery, and uh, you know I grew up in the Bible Belt in Atlanta and then pastored for about 11 years. Uh, and what we call the buckle of the Bible Belt, which is Memphis, Tennessee. And one of the things I picked up on early is that um, a lot of the people who were getting converted, getting saved at our church uh, there at Fellowship Memphis, their baptism stories kind of all had the same theme to it, and that is, hey, grew up in the church, uh, just part of my life, went to Sunday school, vacation, Bible school, all of that. But it wasn't until later on that I really began to understand the gospel. And so what I picked up on early was just kind of something many of us intuitively know, and that is uh, just because you go to church, just because you're steeped in religion, doesn't mean that you clearly understand and have embraced the gospel. And so I preached a four-year s- series of sermons, Bob, based out of the book of Matthew, and uh, one of the things that distinguishes Matthew's gospel from Mark, Luke, and John is that Matthew writes his gospel to the Jews. I mean, just these religious people who uh, went to synagogue every week, worshipped in the temple on high and holy days, gave generously of their money, and yet the very fact that he writes his gospel to them tells us that there is a real drastic difference between the gospel and religion. And so uh, this idea of saving the saved, it's you can think that you're saved, you can be religious, but if you haven't embraced the gospel, you need saving. And I want to ask you about this particular word that you use in the book, and it is meritocracy. Talk about the concept there and how it really snares people who say they believe in Christ. Yeah, you know what's funny about that? Um, Christianity Today just uh, gave this book that I wrote, Saving the Saved, which deals with the meritocracy, they gave it its award of merit. <laughs> Great. <laughs> which is, Congratulations. Which is <laughs> dripping in, in irony. Um, but the idea of a, of a meritocracy is just this whole notion of we live in a society that esteems people based on what they've accomplished. And, you know, that's in the world of sports, you, you know, where you get paid a certain amount of money, based on how you perform or don't perform on the field. Uh, we, we see this in the arts community uh, where, you know, you'll get extended uh, a contract based on how well you sing or based on how you look or who you know. It just colors everything around us. Even we lived in New York City for a while. Even the school system there is based on a meritocracy. So in high school in New York, they don't zone you. So you could be living way up in Washington Heights, and yet you could end up going to high school uh, down around Wall Street based on whether or not you made good enough grades to get into that certain school. It's predicated on performance. 
So when we talk about meritocracy, which is the idea of merit, which is the idea of performance, that colors every aspect of our society, and it even colors the church, where we esteem, you know, pastors and preachers who have a certain size audience, or we esteem churches of a certain size. Um, this is the meritocracy. And so here comes Jesus. He's birthed into the meritocracy of the Roman society, which esteemed you uh, based on uh, whether or not you were a certain class, had a certain amount of money. If you were a man who was married and had sons, you were just incredibly esteemed. And into this comes a single, chaste, homeless, poor Jesus, and nothing about the way he lived communicated remotely that he was trying to fit into the meritocracy. And so this is, this is what we deal with, and that the essential fundamental uh, notion of the gospel is, I can't perform enough. The meritocracy may be a part of the kingdom of this world. It's not a part of the kingdom of God. That's why I need grace. And we talk about what performance-free living and the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ looks like. Brian Loritz here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, Brian Loritz, that's B-R-Y-A-N, Loritz, L-O-R-I-T-T-S, dot C-O. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can find out about subscribing to The Intersection and having it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Author and speaker Esther Fleece, known for her work on behalf of millennials, shared with me recently some material related to her book, No More Faking Fine, Ending the Pretending. In our conversation, she discussed the concept of lament. From that recent discussion, this is Esther Fleece. We are drawn to something when we are trying to hide from pain or mask or pain. To some, it's alcohol. To some, it's gambling. For me, it was busyness. And I think sometimes our Christian churches and Christian communities can become a place where we, um, we esteem the busyness, even if inside the church. You know, you're going to church on Sunday with your family. You're hosting a small group. You're serving one day of the week. Your kids are going to a church activity. We can find ourselves busy in the church four to five times a week. And I did that. So even though it was not as maybe uh, detrimental as, say, drugs or alcohol, uh, it still was a coping mechanism that was prohibiting my intimacy with God. My busyness for God was actually taking away from my intimacy with God. Well, let's talk about that concept of lament People may have heard that word. You think about the book in the Bible, Lamentations. So from your standpoint, what is lament and how can Christian believers actually practice it in their lives? Well, a lament is an expression of grief. Um, it's defined as an expression of anguish. And we do, we see it all throughout the Bible, not just in the book of Lamentations, but through David, we see it. Jesus himself lamented, which is very interesting. If Jesus let us into his laments, why do we sometimes keep our laments from him? Or why do we sanitize our prayers? So 
Laments are an expression of grief, an expression of heartache or disappointment or sadness, but I'm defining it as an expression of grief that God meets somebody in. Because I just believe when you look through scripture that God does not leave a lamenter to themselves. God is deeply attracted to people in their state of need, and God is attracted to us in our brokenness. So for me personally, Bob, I went into this season in Alaska where I didn't have a job. I stepped away from my career, and all I could do was read the book of Psalms. There was something in that book that was just resonating with me. When David would talk about, God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? Did I do something wrong? Would you please cleanse me? And and David would just crying out before God. And I realized these prayers that he was praying, you know, the book of Psalms was given to us as a songbook. Not only were these things prayed, but they were sang in the Jewish communities. And I realized not only do I not pray this way, I don't sing this way. Not only do I not sing this way, I don't even let people into these laments and into these questions that I have. And that's when I realized that there might be something off in my Christianity. How do you translate that time with God in lament to actually being more authentic with people as you interact with them? Oh, Bob, I think that's my favorite question out of all the questions I've gotten in this in this process. And I, you know, I don't think the answer is easy, but I do think the answer starts when we stop being fine all the time. You know, I think the title of the book, No More Faking Fine, when we just say to others, hey, we're fine, things are fine, things are okay, we're shutting down the conversation from happening. We're, we're not inviting people in to know what's really going on in our heart and in our mind. And when we get so used to that in our, in our own communities, in our own schools, and in our own churches, it just becomes natural that we go home and then that's what we give to God as well. We start sanitizing our prayers. We, we start minimizing what we're really going through. We think, oh, God has bigger things going on. You know, he's, he's taking care of the world. I can't, I can't bring to him the worry I have for my own children. And so I say that we have to start by saying we're going to end the pretending. We're, we're just going to say, Here's, I'm actually having a hard day. My faith is low today, and I need prayer. You know, or, you know, I'm really disappointed. God has not answered my prayer in this area. And and would you please help me to to have faith right now? Would you please pray with me? I'm just, I'm my faith is in need of it. And we have to stop faking fine with people we're in relationship with in order for that authentic community to build. Esther Fleece here on The Intersection. Her website is estherfleece.com. The Intersection continues now with marriage expert Gary Thomas, writer-in-residence at Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. He also serves on the teaching team there. Recently, he offered some practical perspective related to his book, Cherish, the One Word That Changes Everything for Your Marriage. Here now is Gary Thomas. Somebody mentioned it this way, and I thought it was just a brilliant way to describe it, that the whole concept was hiding in plain sight. Okay. Virtually all of us pledge to love and to cherish until death do us part. It's been a start, a part of traditional marriage vows as long as we can remember. And we always focus on love in marriage, duty, sacrifice, service, selflessness, which is important. But a lot of us stop short in pursuing the thought of cherishing our spouse. And and here's a, a, a great key in that. Uh, a pastor I know was traveling with seven other men, and he asked the men, how many of your wives – 
love you. All seven hands went up. He said, how many of your wives like you? Every hand went down. Uh Every husband felt loved. None felt cherished. But we promised to cherish. So in the book, Cherish, I'm trying to say what does it mean to cherish? How does that change the experience of marriage? How does it change our goals for marriage? And how does it change our expression of marriage? Well, and when you talk about this difference, that's a wonderful image, that story that you just shared about people that say their spouse loves them versus how many how many people could say that their spouse likes them. So where's the disconnect? How did this get so uh, uh, so crazy here? I, I think we just kind of focused on, you know, we wanted to attack divorce for some good reasons and whatnot. So it was, sort of became a grit your teeth and hang in there sort of thing. But I don't want my wife to think I'm with her because it would go against the Bible to leave her. I want my wife to think that I'm with her because I adore her, that I delight in her, and that I cherish her. So one of the first chapters in Cherish, I talk about the only man or the only woman in the world. And I go back to why Adam and Eve were so happy in their marriage. We could say there were a lot of reasons. One, there was no sin, which certainly has a big part of it. God was present in the cool of the day. That would have been amazing Some guys would say, "Uh, Doug, Gary, they were naked all day long, and okay, fine, I'll give them that. But I think one of the keys that we don't talk about is that for a short slice of time, Adam was literally the only man in the world. Eve was literally the only woman in the world. They had no one to compare each other to. Adam couldn't look at Eve and say, well, she's kind, but she's not quite as funny as Shanice, or she's not quite as curvy as Cindy, or she's not quite as intelligent as as Sharon or whatnot. There was just Eve, the woman who defined what a woman was to Adam. And there's a fantastic verse in Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 9. It says, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. And cherishes this attempt to form a heart and mind where I go back to where I look at my wife as the only woman in the world, the one that I adore above all others, the one that I value above all others, the one that I treat above all others. Most of us have done that at times in our marriage. If I were to talk to any guy out there, I think I could say if he's married, there was a time when everybody knew, including the woman who's now your wife, that you were crazy about her. Is that still true? And if not, why not? I do want to explore this analogy that you create throughout the book, and it's an analogy between cherishing your spouse and a couple's ballet dance. So talk about that if you would. George Balanchine is a Russian-born choreographer, and he was huge in the ballet community. He had this phrase where he said, the ballet is woman. What he meant by that is that people go to the ballet, particularly if it's couples dancing, to see the beauty, the finesse, the grace of the ballerina. And the most successful male dancers realize that their role is to showcase the ballerina because by supporting her, by lifting her, by throwing her, by catching her, she can do more as a dancer than she could on her own. But he has to remember they're there to see her. If he's trying to step in front of her, if he's trying to show the the crowd his balance, his muscles – It's going to be an ugly performance. And this whole notion about the ballet as woman, if we apply that to marriage, what if my job as a husband is to showcase my wife to the world, to let others see her beauty, her excellence, her gifts, whether it's the gift of hospitality, whether it's the gift of leadership, whether it's the gift of wisdom. Every wife has different gifts. But it's just recognizing that my job is to be her support and to help others see her excellence. 
and, and here's what I found, Bob. When I focus on doing that, when I want to, what I call showcase my wife, others do extol her. They recognize her excellence. Well, that increases my affection for my wife because I realize not only do I love her, other people love her too. So I'm more eager to showcase her, which shapes my heart more. And what I found is that cherishing feeds itself. Gary Thomas here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website GaryThomas.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Chad Robichaux, founder of Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs and co-author of the book Path to Resiliency. He discussed the concept of being resilient. That's a concept taught to veterans that come through the Mighty Oaks program, as well as active duty military to which Mighty Oaks ministers. Here now with some words about spiritual resiliency is Chad Robichaux. I believe, uh, you know, one, you can't, you can't be resilient to the the hardships of this world or the hardships of life or especially something such as combat. If you're not living the life you're intended to live, if you're living outside of the scope of your design and, uh, and you can't live in the scope of your design without a relationship with Christ. So it's, it's coming to understanding that, uh, you know, this, this world isn't an easy one to live in, whether you're in the military or not, whether you go to Afghanistan or Iraq or not, we're going to face hardships. But when we do, we, we must have the, the ability to bounce back. And um, most of us don't have a point to bounce back to uh, outside of a relationship with Christ. And so a spiritual resiliency would mean understanding who it was you're created to be, uh, what God's plan is for your life, and, and the hope that comes with understanding that. The hope that comes with understanding that a victory in our life is uh, has already been won, and it's not a battle that we have to fight. And uh, when we truly grasp that and understand that, um, something changes in our ability to, to face hardships and trauma. And so what we found when we worked with our veterans on the back end of combat, uh, guys who have, or suicidal or major depression and they're struggling with all these things, we found that once we could bring them back to that core uh, design of their life and making the, the choices and living by design, they're able, to, they're able to get their life back on track. Well, we said, well, why don't we do this uh, on the front end? and and uh, give guys these same principles on the front end. So as they go to face uh, hardships such as combat, they'll walk into uh, they'll walk in these hard situations knowing that whatever happens to them, they have a point to bounce back to. And uh, and uh, so I believe that's what resiliency is. Resiliency is, is is not not being exempt of the hardships of life, but uh, knowing where to bounce back to when you fall and when you stumble. And that's what gives us the ability to truly be resilient. The, the United States military has always talked about the three pillars of resiliency. As long as I can remember being a, you know, going in the Marine Corps in 1993, uh, the pillars of resiliency was mind, body, spirit. I think somewhere over the last, you know, uh, 20 something years that I've been around the military, that word spirit has lost its meaning. It's almost become like a esprit de corps or a pep rally type word and uh, not true spiritual resiliency. And I'm very thankful right now seeing a lot of military leaders trying to bring that back. Um, and to the military current sergeant major of the marine corps and commandant of the marine corps bringing in a spiritual fitness program there's a lot of people outside of you know me that are really uh recognize this and push pursuing this effort so this book and this effort is a uh, it's just part of a, a major effort of people realizing that you know we can't be a resilient competent war fighting force with uh by leaving god out of the picture well, Chad, you talk about living the life that our creator or our designer really designed for us to have. 
What do you see as some components of that identity that we can have in Jesus Christ? In other words, the way that God would intend for us to live. Well, I, I think what, what uh, and this is kind of a lesson that I've discovered in working with people who who have been broken or have faced hardship is uh, coming to the realization that that uh, the events that happen in our life, the however tragic they may have been, however heroic they may have been, whether they've been Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, or or maybe a you know someone who's never even been to combat but you know lost someone or or just faced a tremendous hardship in their life, those circumstances, however bad they may be, don't dictate the circumstances of a life. What what does dictate the circumstances of our life is the choices we make in response to those, and we never lose control of that. And uh, when someone ha- comes to the realization that they could accept responsibility for their situation, even if they were wronged, and uh, realize they have the ability to choose, the the next step beyond that, because that's a big step in healing, but it's also a big step in being resilient, is accepting responsibility for oneself. And and uh, and the next step beyond that is is having those set of choices, understanding, right, we all have the ability to choose, well, what do those choices look like? And the Bible has the answers for those. And so in the work that we've done in this, in the work that we're doing now through spiritual resiliency with with uh, our, our military folks is, is, is uh, looking at those choices as they present themselves in su- such subjects as what does character look like? What's the Bible say about character? What's the Bible say about discipline? What's the Bible say about our legacy, living our lives with the end of our life in mind or with eternity in mind? Uh, are we living a life that would be uh, shameful to pass on the generation behind us or a life that's worth passing on the generation behind us? Chad Robichaux here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website mightyoaksprograms.org. Well, we are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find the download center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, through that website, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.